you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 150. And as you are doing so, I want to remind us how quickly this year has come and gone. Here we are. Today is the last Sunday of 2020. And here we are gathered to worship. And in just a few short days, if we remember, we will flip our calendars and we'll begin writing the date very differently. I said if you remember. If you're like me, I'll probably be writing 20 at the end of checks and different things for several months. But it's funny how time has moved quickly. And so I was asked to preach on this last Sunday of this year and I began thinking, what what does one preach when you are sandwiched between two different texts? So we were in the book of Luke uh, last week where we talked about the joy that that comes from the birth of Christ. And next Lord's Day, uh, Lord willing, we'll be back in the book of Romans in 13. And we read something like this in the book of Romans 13 where it says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So what text do we come to on this Lord's Day in between the joy of Christmas and then looking towards the return of Christ and His judgment? And as I began praying about it, Psalm 150 seemed to be the most fitting. Why? Well, Psalm 150 is all about praise. Praise to the God. And so what is our response to the God of the universe, the sovereign Lord, the joy that comes at Christmas like we saw in Luke last week? It is praise. What is our response as God's chosen people to the coming judgment, to the return of Christ? It is praise. And I also think it's fitting that we come to Psalm 150 on the last Sunday of 2020 because As we've said time and time again, this year has been filled with great joy at times, and it has been filled with great sorrow. It has run all over the place with emotions. And what does the book of Psalms do? It speaks to the gamut of emotions. It runs the gamut of emotions as we see the various psalmists write. But how does that book end? It ends in Psalm 150. It ends in praise. And that's how we're going to end this year together in corporate worship, is in a time of praise. In fact, Psalm 150 has been described as one writer as the grand doxology. It ends the Psalter in this big praise. So now let's turn our attention to God's Word in Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with loud sounding, or excuse me, with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we can come together to praise your name we are thankful for psalm 150 and your commands for us to praise you we're thankful for this opportunity and god may we be a people who praises you 
So would you turn our attention to this word, open our minds and our hearts, that we may hear what you have to say to us this morning from your word. We pray all this for your glory and to the praise of your name. As in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we looked and as we read that psalm, I hope it was a little bit jarring for you. Because I think so oftentimes, we, so many times we come to this text and we go, praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, and we just read it and go through it and speed through it. But the emphasis was added on Him and praise the Lord because that is what the purpose of this psalm is. It is to point our attention to God who is the one who deserves our praise. We see throughout this psalm, it begins with commands to praise Him, it's filled with praises to command Him, and it ends with praises to, or excuse me, commands to praise the Lord. And as the psalmist moves through this text, though, he answers some questions for us as to the what of praise, the why of praise, the how of praise, and even the who of praise. And so he doesn't leave us guessing about how praise should look and, and what this really is about. And so as we look in verse 1 here, we're going to look at kind of the what of praise. Is what is this praise that we're to be doing? What is it centered upon? Rather, who is it centered upon? So the first verse is simply, praise the Lord. And as we come to that, we think, okay, that's simple enough. Now, I had a seminary professor who joked and said that uh, sharing your, your Greek and your Hebrew is kind of like undergarments. It's great for support, but that doesn't mean anybody needs to see it. But this morning, I want you to hear about the Hebrew that's here. Because in this first verse here, we've got one word. It's a combination word. Two words put together to make one word. And the word is hallelujah. So why talk about this word? Because I'll tell you why. It's a word that we use so often, but sometimes I think we forget what it actually means. It means praise the Lord. It comes from the verb hallel, which means to praise. And then the tag on the end of that is yah, which is short for Yahweh. And as we hear the name Yahweh, we ought to be reminded of the holiness of God and the reverence too, as that name is revealed in Scripture. That, that what he's saying is we're to praise the Lord. We're to praise the God of the universe, the sovereign Lord, the one who is the great I Am, the one who is God Almighty. That's who we're to praise this morning. That's the what we've come to do. Charles Spurgeon wrote of this, of this verse right here. He said, Should they not all declare the glory of Him? For whose glory they are and were created? Jehovah, the one God, should be the one object of adoration. To give the least particle of His honor to another is shameful treason. To refuse to render it to Him is heartless robbery. Why would Charles Spurgeon write this? He writes it because God is the only one who deserves our worship. He is the only one who deserves our praise. And we should want to give it to Him freely. It's more than a duty to come here together and gather with the body and praise. It's a delight that we should want to come and gather and lift our voices as one voice as we sing, as we pray, as we hear God's word proclaimed. We should want to praise our God, the one true living Lord. Now verse 1 doesn't just give us the what of praise and what we're to do. It gives us the where of praise. Like Where should praise take place? Well, in verse 1, the second half of there, we see here, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty heavens. Well, where is God's sanctuary? Can we put it in Google Maps and try to find out where it is? I mean, is there a certain location for it? 
Well, obviously for the Jewish context of this passage and to his Jewish hearers, they would have known. Where is God's sanctuary? God's sanctuary would have reminded them of the temple where they would go and make sacrifices and where they would go and worship and give praises. Because what was the temple? The temple was the picture and representation, the symbol that God dwelt with His people. And so that's where they went. They made their sacrifices. They, they gave their worship to the Lord. But what does that mean for us here, right now in 2020? Is this building a temple? Is this the only place that we can come in here and worship? Absolutely not. You see, because the New Testament tells us that for those of us who are believers, 1 Corinthians 3, what? That we are what? Living temples of God and that His Holy Spirit dwells within us. So wherever we are as the people of God, that's where His praise should be. Not just in here on Sunday mornings, but in every day of our, every day of our life. And we, as we gather with the body, whether it's here or outside there, our praises should be given to the one true God. Psalm 22.3 says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. See, God dwells in the praises of His people. We are to be a people who are a praising people. It should be on our minds, in our hearts, on our lips, in everything we do, in our actions. We are to be a people who are marked by praise. When people see us out and about, they don't see people who are perfect. They see people who are praising the one who is perfect. We are to be that kind of people where praise takes place, not just on Sunday mornings. Now the second location that the psalmist writes about is that we're to praise Him in His mighty heavens. Well, he's not saying that we have to get a, a rocket ship and, and fly up there. We need to move locations. Hey, we'll meet here this Sunday. And next Sunday we'll be in the mighty heavens to, to praise His name. No, what is the psalmist getting at? The psalmist is inviting the heavenly host to join in the chorus of praise. Do you understand that when we gather like we do on Sunday morning, something grand and glorious happens. Heaven and earth are joined together in praise. That means when we come in here, we're not just praising with each other in this place. We are praising God with all the saints who have gone on before us and with all of the heavenly hosts. We are to worship God in heaven and on earth that His name might be praised there. Why? One guy wrote this, that His glory fills the universe. His praise must do no less. This is the God that we are talking about here because we are to praise Him wherever He is. And where is our Lord? He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. So His praises should be everywhere. Why though? Why should His praise fill the universe? And what makes our God so worthy of our praise and affection? I'm glad you've asked. Because Psalmist tells us here in verse 2. Listen to what he says. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Now we've gotten to the why. So again, I ask you why. Why does God deserve praise? First, we see what the psalmist writes here. It is because of what God has done. It is because of His mighty deeds. Well, Let's take a moment and let's think about what our God has done. What are some of those mighty deeds? You've got to go to Genesis 1. What did He do? He creates the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, animals, people. And then from there, though, we see people are wicked. So then he shows his power. And one of his mighty deeds is that he destroys the earth with a flood. 
And then God continues and he takes a pagan man named Abraham and calls him to be a people for himself. So God takes a pagan and makes him a people for his own good pleasure and good purposes. Then he delivers those people from the hand of Pharaoh. He provides for his people in the wilderness. He gives them prophets. He protects them from all their enemies. Listen, we could go on and on and on about what the Lord has done, correct? We're not even out of the Old Testament yet, are we? And there's so much more that we could talk about what God has done in Scripture. And we need to think about what are the mighty things that He has done in our own life. And when we get there, we cannot forget what the ultimate mighty deed is that our God has done. And that's the fact that He sent His one and only Son to be born of a virgin, to come and live a perfectly obedient life. What? That He might die on the cross for our sin, that you and I might be redeemed, a vile, wretched people who hated God. Christ died for us, and then He was buried, and on the third day, God raised Him from the dead, that we might have eternal life in Christ Jesus. Those are some of the things that our God has done. Amen? That is who our God is. That is what He has done for us. But wait, there's more. Not only does the psalmist tell us that we are to praise God, him for what he has done but you heard me kind of mention it we're to praise God for what for who he is if we think about this we cannot separate the two because God does what he does because he is who he is everything that God does flows from his character everything he does comes out of who he is God acts in a holy way because He is holy. God acts righteously because He is righteous. He acts in wrath because He is wrathful. He acts in mercy because He is merciful. So we come here and we praise Him for what He's done. We praise Him for who He is. But listen, we have to describe Him in order to be able to praise Him. And how do we describe Him? Just like He's described his, Himself in Scripture. And we've already mentioned some about the fact that God is holy and that He is perfect. He's complete. He's wrathful. He's just. He's righteous. He's merciful. He's loving. He's giving and forgiving. And there's so much more that we could say about our God and who He is. But we need to be reminded too that all of who God is is worthy of our praise. Not just the attributes that we like about God. We need to praise God for all of who He is because all of that is a part of His excellent greatness. And we need to praise Him Without hesitancy and without qualification, we do not need to apologize for God. We need to praise Him for who He is. But practically speaking, we've got to be guarded here because we cannot properly praise God if we're not in His Word. Because that is where we find these things about Him that He wants us to know. We have to go to His Word and see about His holiness and His righteousness. And it's important too because it guards us because our praise isn't just subjective. Our praise ought to be rooted in objective, historical, factual truth. I think for many of us, when we do our, our reading plans, like Pastor Michael has out there, we get bogged down in the Old Testament, don't we? Like if I have to see them count the Israelites one more time, you know, you're like, what does this mean? We do, we get bogged down in it. We're like, why is this in here? But no, understand, it's in there for a reason because our God intentionally put it in there. What? To remind us of things. To remind us of what He has done and who He is because let's face facts. 
We're forgetful people, aren't we? When you think about the Israelites, how forgetful they were. Get across the Red Sea, and then what do they do? Praise the Lord the whole time, or they start complaining and grumbling again? We're just like them. So we need to be, as one person said, we need to be reminded more often than we need to be taught. Because we forget who God is and what He has done so often, and then we act as as such. And this informs our praise. So in order to praise Him properly, we need to be reminded of truth. Because another thing this does is guards us from thinking that praise and worship is only about the emotions that we experience. So often we think that worship and praise has to be this super emotional experience or it was of no count. I didn't get anything out of worship today. But the reality is our emotions do play a part in worship. They should be there. Hear me. God has given you your emotions. You need to use them to praise Him. But... If we measure the success of praise and worship based on our emotion, then we've missed the mark. We need to be focused on measuring based on to whom the praise is delivered. Because he is infinitely valuable. Because let's face facts, if we base our praise and worship this morning on how we feel, we come in here sometimes and we're not feeling it, are we? We've had a long week. We've had a hard week. So it has to be based in something objective that doesn't change. And what doesn't change? Rather, who doesn't change? Our God doesn't change. See, our praise, even with our emotions, should be a response to the truth of God's Word, not how we feel that morning or every day. Let me kind of give you an idea here because, realistically, is God great because we feel He is great? Or is He great because He is great? He is great, and that is the truth of the matter. Because sometimes we don't feel a certain way, but God remains the same and He is great. So we need to respond to that truth with praise. Let me give you an example of how our emotions and our praise is a response to truth by the structure of a hymn. Now, for many of you know, you've got a hymn and most of them have choruses. Like, how great thou art. So what the verse does, its function is that we sing a truth in the verse. And the chorus is a response to that truth. So when we come to a hymn like How Great Thou Art, and we sing, And when I think that God is Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. We have sung truth right there that God sent His Son into the world to redeem a people. What is our only response that overflows with joy? Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Now we've got something to sing about because we've sung truth, haven't we? And our hearts should overflow with joy. So there is emotion there, but it's not on how we feel. It's on the reality of what God has done and who He is. Amen? Amen. So God has given us in the Psalms the why of praise. And now God, as a gracious God, has given us the how of praise as we progress through this psalm, as we look to verses 3 through 5, where we read again, Praise Him 
with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Now this next section I kind of foreshadowed for you as, as we sang. I saw some of you out there singing. I appreciate that. He's going to look at the musical aspect of praise here. But we need to pause for a moment and be reminded again, not all praise is only music. Something sad has happened in the church where we've used praise and music so interchangeably, so much, that sometimes we think that music is praise, praise is music. Listen, when we were praying earlier, we were praising. As we fellowship, we can praise God. When we hear the word proclaimed or read, we can praise God. And Baptists, we can praise God when we fast. You heard me. Let that sink in for a moment. It's not just music, but thanks be to God that we do get the gift of music here. And God uses this also to illustrate some things. So, the command here we see is to praise the Lord with a variety of instruments. You see trumpets and strings and pipes and sounding cymbals and loud clashing cymbals. And so, what are we to make of this? Because likely these would have been used in temple worship. And as I look around, I'm, we do have some cymbals and stuff too, but I think somebody left their lute at home. Um, and so, what do we do with that? Are we only bound by these instruments? Well, first of all, I think we need to see that these instruments are representative of what our praise can be. Because you notice, too, that the instruments here are soft in, in nature for some and loud in others. Listen, our praise ought to be done celebratory in a manner and, and loudly and proudly. But is our praise always loud and proudly? Can we not equally praise God through the tears and lament and through the sorrow? See, God has given us that ability and freedom to praise Him loudly and proudly from the highest mountaintops to the lowest valleys. But God is also a God whom we can praise in the darkest of days. And so we see here that these instruments are representative of that. Now, the question then goes, so are we only allowed to use these instruments that, that they've listed out here? And the answer is no. Because if you look at it, we're missing something very important here. Something very important to our worship. What have we been doing prior to the sermon? Singing. The voice is not listed here. So are we just to say no more singing? No, absolutely not. Because Ephesians and Colossians tell us what? That we are to admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Doing what? Singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts. So I think what happens here is we fall into two different camps. You've got some who fall into the camp that say, oh, there are no instruments mentioned in the New Testament, so you throw them out. You've got others who say, you know what? The door is open. Let anything and everything in worship. And I would argue both are wrong, and both miss the boat dramatically. Because here's the thing, to dismiss instruments because they're not mentioned in the New Testament is to neglect the Old Testament. And we need to be a people who looks at the whole counsel of God. We need to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I think we have freedom to have instruments and singing. I think, too, we do see parameters, though, in Scripture. So we have to be guarded that we don't let anything and everything come into worship because it's foolish. And it undermines the glory of God because if everything is worship, then nothing is worship. And so there have to be parameters. There has to be guards around here. We have to be careful what we allow into our praise, particularly our musical praise. 
Everything we do, especially musically, should be for the glory of God. That should be the first and foremost thought of our minds. I am thankful for all these musicians up here. They are very talented and we are blessed here. But their first and foremost job is to be a theologian first, a musician second. We need to care more about what the song says than how it sounds. Now, does that mean that we get up here and just throw together songs and let it sound however? Absolutely not. I hope my musicians are cringing. <laughs> no, we shouldn't. Why? Because we serve the one God, so it ought to be good in quality of sound. But that can't be our primary focus. The theology of what we're singing, that has to be. Because our theology is what we believe about God. And what we sing about God communicates what kind of people we are. Because when we lose sight of that and we become more focused on the sound sometimes, it can be a personal preference thing. And we can get in this rut where we're like, I don't like that song. Or I like that song. That song blesses me. I, I don't care for that song. I don't like that instrument. Oh, I love that instrument. Give me more of that instrument. You know, I like this style of music. I don't like that style of music. Let me illustrate this, how this can really play out. There was a guy one time leading worship at a church, and every Sunday that this one individual was there, she decided to bless the worship pastor's heart by coming up and saying to him right before service, are we going to sing some good songs today? I'm telling you, he was ushered right into the throne right there. He was ready to see Jesus at that point. Because the, part, the heart behind her comment was what? The heart behind her comment was that she wanted to hear songs that she wanted. And if we didn't sing the type of songs that, that she wanted to sing, guess what? It wasn't going to be worship. You know, we can be guilty of this too when we come here. And I'll tell you what that worship pastor said, prayerfully in the spirit, not in the flesh. He just gently leaned over to her and said, we sing good songs every Sunday because we sing songs about Christ. That's the measure of whether our worship and praise is good. Is what is the content? What is the focus? What glorifies God? And who gets to determine what glorifies God? He does. Because He is the one being worshipped. He is the perfect Holy One. Worship is centered on Him. We're not here to worship us. We're not here to worship you or me. We're here to worship Him. So we should be focused on Him. Now as we move on, don't worry. There are some of you who have already read ahead on verse 4 and are wondering, how is He going to do this? Because some of us Baptists are getting nervous in here now, aren't we? So, well, Matt, why, why would we get nervous about God's Word? Because verse 4 says, praise Him with tambourine and dance. And, and listen, we Baptists are notorious. We can shuffle and sway, but if the feet come off the floor, it turns into something more. That, that is exactly how we have, trust me, I grew up Baptist. I was Baptist before I was born, you know, as the old joke says. But we come to that passage of Scripture and we're like, oh, what are we going to do here? Listen, we can't dance around this issue, pun intended. Because it's in God's Word. And so we have to deal with it. We have to look at God's Word and say, what is He doing here? What is God trying to tell us? Well, the word for dance here is dance. So we got a problem because we got to deal with this word dance here. Now listen, this is not talking about a form of dance that draws attention to the worshiper. 
But what this is is a form of dance. It's a full bodily expression that points to the reality of what's taking place on the inside. It is an external uh, display of the internal reality of what God has done in a person's life. That it comes in full bodily form. Because listen, when God saved us, did He save our soul and kick our body to the curb? No, God saved all of us, didn't He? We are a people who stand on what? The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That He was raised physically, correct? That's right. And that one day, in the last day, we too will be raised with Him bodily as our souls and bodies are joined together. We have glorified bodies freed from the burden of sin and sickness and sorrow in this world. So listen, because we are a people who have been redeemed, because we are a people who have God has saved all of us, we have to use every fiber of our being to praise the One who made us and saved us. That is what dance is getting at. And what these verses are getting at in total is that we are to praise God with everything that we are and everything that we have. That's what this is getting at. Whatever you've been given by the Lord, time, talent, whatever it is, use for His glory and to His praise. So we've looked at the what, the why, the how, and now finally we come to the who. Who is to do this praising? Verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Throughout this song, time and time again, you've heard praise, praise, praise. Well, if you know anything about English, if you don't, this is free. Whenever there's a command, the subject is always understood to be who? You. You praise the Lord. You praise Him for His excellent greatness. You praise Him in His mighty heavens. You praise Him with the tambourine. You praise Him with a dance. You praise Him. We are the ones who are called to praise Him. And the psalmist gets even more specific. But he says, let everything that has breath, what? Praise the Lord. All of creation was made for the glory of God. And all of creation should be crying out, praising the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote this in the book of Colossians where he says, For by Him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. God created all things, and He created so for His praise and for His glory. If you have breath this morning, you need to praise the Lord. But there's a problem. Genesis 3. We are separated from God. By our sin. We cannot praise God on our own. We don't want to praise God on our own, do we? We want the praise and glory for ourselves. That's why we need the power of the gospel to come in and change our hearts, to break down that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that we might praise God as He so deserves. We need the gospel. You understand that's why missions exist? As John Piper wrote this, missions exist because worship doesn't. That's the whole point is everybody is out there worshiping everything but God. And they can't know otherwise until the power of the gospel comes in and changes them. That's why we need to repent of our sins and believe in Christ Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and was raised by the power of God because in Him and in Him alone is salvation. In Him alone can we be reconciled to God the Father. 
And our praise ought to be to God the Father and Christ the Son and His Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit who gives us, once we're changed and reborn, the ability to praise God as we should. So if we have breath this morning, we need to praise Him. Church, listen to me. We have been redeemed. And we have been given new life. Eternal life in Christ Jesus We have the breath of new life in our lungs as we speak for those of us who have been changed by the Gospel. And so we owe Him our praise. But what happens if we keep silent? What can happen if we keep silent? Turn with me if you've got your Bibles. Flip over to Luke 19. Here in Luke 19, the context of the passage is the triumphal entry. Jesus is... Is, is coming in and he is being met with Pharisees and he's being met with those who are praising his name. And I want us to see as we go to this text what God can do to get the praise that he deserves. Beginning in verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Notice their response to everything they had seen. Praise and worship. Saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Here's what Jesus says in verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Do you see what our God could do? That if we, His people, who have been born again, who should be appraising people, keep silent, God can make creation, God can make the inanimate objects. He can make stones cry out His praises and glory. We had a heart of stone that was broken and been given a heart of flesh. We don't want some rocks crying out in our place, do we? Because we are a people who have experienced the salvation of our Lord. We ought to be a praising people day in and day out. And it doesn't just start in here. It starts at home and when we come in here. James Montgomery Boyce said this about people and praise. If you cannot sing loudly and make loud music to praise the God who has redeemed you in Christ Jesus and is preparing you for heaven, perhaps it's because you do not really know God or the gospel at all. If you do know Him, Hallelujah. I think sometimes, too, our desire to praise ought to be a way we measure. Do I really want to praise Him? Do I love God? Do I know Him? Again, I'm not saying from an emotional standpoint. But, but it ought to make us have a gut check. Because we ought to be a people who want to praise Him. And praise Him with all that we are and all that we have. The psalmist brings us back and finishes out this psalm again with praise the Lord. How he began, he ends. And this isn't because he ran out of things to say. It's intentional on the part of our Lord to be reminded that 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 ought to be our end game. is praise to the Lord. Or as Alexander McLaren said this, the psalm is more than artistic close to the Psalter. It is a prophecy of the last result in the devout life. And in its unclouded sunniness, as well as in its universality, it proclaims the certain end of the weary years for the individual and for the world. Everything that hath breath shall praise Jehovah. 
What joy is there in that? This life is not all we have. It is a blessing from the Lord. But the weary years of pain and wrestling with sin and sickness and seeing death comes to an end because of Christ. And what does our life end in? It doesn't end in misery for the believer. It ends in praise because we will be free, as Revelation tells us, from tears and sorrow and sickness. The former things are passed away and God will have made all things new. Praise is our end. And that's why the psalmist ends it right there. And that's how we're going to end 2020 is praising God as His people. But before we depart, let's think about this practically of what this looks like. How, how do we do this? Because that sounds great. And we've got the big theological picture. But what does that mean for us practically? What can we take home with us? Here are just some practical thoughts on this. We need to be intentional each and every day. In the moments of our day to praise God. But we have to fight for that. We have to plan for that. I'll give you an example. Has God recently answered a prayer request for you? Praise Him for that. Don't just take the gift without remembering the giver. I tell you, for, for most of you, you know that our, our youngest spent several days in NICU and we were blessed because he was not the worst case in the NICU. But I remember pleading and begging the Lord just to let him go home with us. I'm here to tell you, praise to the Lord publicly for those who remember. Praise the Lord. He did that. But even if he wouldn't have done that, he still would have been worthy of my praise because he listened to my prayer. So I want you to rejoice with us in that. Do you say a prayer before you eat? Take a few extra minutes and think about who God is and what he's done. And spend some extra time in prayer before you get to that Baptist bird fried chicken. Spend that little extra time praising God. You can take an extra few minutes. I think one thing you could do is pick an attribute of God, a different one each week. And focus in on that with your family during your family time of worship. Focus on that. Find songs. Find scriptures that point to this attribute, His holiness, His righteousness. And you can keep going on. Make your prayers centered around that. So start by praising God for His holiness. Thank God for His holy acts. And then you can even move into confession of sin. In light of that attribute, you can confess your sin. And finally, whatever you're asking God to do, you can ask in light of that characteristic of God. So you can weave that into your daily life naturally. I think, too, number three, we can ask each other on a regular basis, hey, what has the Lord done in your life this week that we need to praise Him together for? I mean, could you imagine if we walked in these doors right here and instead of saying, oh, hey, I love your shoes or uh, how's little Flu-Flu, your puppy, what if we, sorry if your dog's name's Flu-Flu, I just made that up. Um, but what if we came in here and said, hey, I want to share something with you, what God's done in my life. Will you, will you stand here and, and praise him with me? Or what if we said, hey, you know what? Is there anything we can praise God together for? Could you imagine how different our lives would be, how different our worship would be when we came in here if our focus is already on out there as we come in here what God has been doing? How drastically that changed? Why did I share from the pulpit with you about what God had done with Enoch? Because you were in here praying with me, begging the Lord 
to let my son come home. And guess what? Now we can rejoice that he is at home and he's doing well. God did all of that. So we need to be people who share our praises with one another. It's not something to be kept in here. It's meant to be gotten out there so the world might see the praises that God's people give to him because of what he's done. I think finally and simply, one of the greatest applications of praise that we can do as God's people is to simply stop and behold our God. He is seated on his throne. So come, let us adore him. Stop. Behold our king. Nothing compares to him. So come, let us adore him. Father, we are thankful that you are our God and our king. You have done so much. You continue to do so much. God, you are everything to us. Father, may we be a people who praise your name each and every day because you are a God who cares for us each and every day and you are worthy of our praise. So Father, we ask that you would continue to inhabit the praises of your people. Help us to bless your name as we sing. May you receive all the glory. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.